Junior Johnson is a NASCAR Hall of Famer, a legend of the sport, and today we're taking a deep dive into his humble beginnings in the movie The Last American Hero. His name is Junior Jackson. Instead of a white stallion, he rides a black Mustang. He learned about cars running whiskey in the Carolina Hills. Looks pretty suspicious, huh? You set your evidence on fire. Now, this is the only life I know. And I'm not going to stop now, but my boys are going to have something different. He wiped out the pack in the demolition derby. He's beautiful. He is beautiful. Make a move on me, I'll rip his lip off, give it to you for a key ring. He tore up the track in the grueling Hickory 500. You don't like taking orders, drive for yourself. He drives his car like he lives his life, flat out. Look, I won that race fair and square. Welcome back to Zoom Lens. My name is Eric Estep. I'm joined, as always, by Josh Mull. We also have a very special guest this week. Ben White, uh, co-host of the A Lifetime in NASCAR podcast, is here, and we're talking about one of Ben's favorite movies. We figured it was perfect to bring him in this week, but also I'd say one of my new favorite NASCAR movies, not to get into the details too quickly, but we're talking about The Last American Hero today. Josh, good to see you. You excited for the show? I am, but I, I will say, and I will, I will bring Ben here in here in just a second, but I have to start this episode uh, with a dire warning for you, Eric, and and for our listeners at large, in that um, we talk about this when when the show began, we we have a, a started with a list, and that list has grown massively to I think forty or fifty movies that we have just so far, and the last few have been pretty good. They've gotten good endorsements from us, uh, and after seeing. Uh, Fireball 500, then Red Dirt Rising, and now this movie, there is no way this can possibly continue. There's no way this string of full endorsements, everybody should watch this, uh, there's no way this can continue. We are going, uh, any day now, we are going to watch the worst thing we have ever seen, and I just know that's coming. Uh, But aside from that, I am so excited to talk about this movie, and uh, ben, I want to bring in Ben White. In addition to, as you mentioned, uh, a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast here on the Out of the Groove Network, he is also uh award-winning writer, reporter, journalist, um, has covered NASCAR for uh, decades, written several books on the topic. Uh, ben, when, you, when we first started, before this show even existed, um, I talked to you about it, and you that list we have is... is uh, a huge chunk of that; those movies come from you. But you mentioned this is your favorite racing movie, and that really jumped out at us. As okay, we need to we need to look at this movie closer. What is it? Tell us about Last American Hero to you. Yeah, well, thanks first of all for having me on today, guys. Uh, an honor to be here. I think the reason that I love this movie so much is because it really hits home as far as what moonshine uh moonshining i guess is the word that was was really all about and of course that era of nascar uh, was of course in 1940s and 50s when it really happened but this is a takeoff on junior johnson and the way uh, he and his family managed the moonshine business in north wilkesboro north carolina and they sort of moved it up a bit uh to uh, around the early 70s and of course this entire story uh, was was uh, taken from a, a a great writer. His name was Thomas Wolf or Tom Wolf, and it was uh, derived from an article that appeared uh, in Esquire magazine on March first, nineteen sixty five. It was about Junior Johnson's life, and one of the great lines in that particular uh, article was uh, Mr. Wolf asked Junior, said so he was visiting there in North Wilkesboro at, at Junior's farm. And he says, well, what, how much of this do you own? And Junior and his Southern drawl looked over at him and, and only Junior could say it best. He said, 
everything that's green is mine, everything that's green. And so that's the way Junior approached everything. And, and you know, here's a man who drove 200 miles an hour. He drove uh, in moonshine, uh, drove moonshine on the roads of, NAS- of North Carolina, drove in NASCAR. But to hear him talk, he was very smooth, very down to earth, never got in a hurry. He would talk to his drivers on the racetrack on the radio He said, listen, boy, this is what you need to do. Talking to Daryl Waltrip, he's like this, you need to get around this boy. You can't drive a lick, you know, that kind of thing. He was just very, um, very, very easy to talk to, very down to earth. And every time I talked to Junior about moonshine or about racing or about anything, never got excited about anything. Matter of fact, very quickly, I know we're talking about movies, but one time Chris Economaki asked him at Darlington, when Kale Yarborough was out on the racetrack, he said, so Junior, can you tell us what's going on with the car? And he said, the tires, it's the tires. And he said, oh, and Chris said, okay, it must be the tire, the tar on the track. It's the tar on the track. Back to you to the booth. And it wasn't the tar on the track. It was the tires. That's the way Junior spoke. It was just his very smooth and very down to earth, like I said, style of drive, of talking and driving. And so that's what this moonshine movie is about. It was the way that uh, the the Johnson family made their money. And this went back, you know, for centuries back in that area uh, of the of North Carolina, because if you didn't make and sell moonshine, you basically went hungry. And there was a lot of churches in that area, believe it or not, that kept their doors open by moonshine money. And that when the when the plate was passed from pew to pew, it wasn't because they raised corn or well, they raised corn to make moonshine, but it wasn't because they raised corn to sell or beans or potatoes or corn or, or say carrots. It was money that they they raised from making moonshine. And, and what's so interesting about the movie, and they even say it in the movie, is the judge drank Junior's moonshine and the lawyers drank it and the police department guys drank it. The sheriff's office guys, you know, the deputies drank it. But Junior's father went to prison anyway for making it. And, you know, that was just a way of life in Wilkesboro and Wilkes County. And, of course, that's mentioned in, in the movie Amer- The Greatest uh, American Hero here. And, and it's so down to earth. That's why I'm answering your question in a long-winded way. But that's the reason I love this movie, because so much of it is accurate. And Hollywood has a, a distinct uh, reason not to make them accurate. I don't know why that is, but once they get the script, they start messing with it and doing things to it, and they cannot, for the life of me, I cannot figure out why they cannot make an accurate NASCAR movie, but this one is one that, that's pretty accurate, pretty right on the money, and, and they did a nice job with it. Yeah, this movie came out in 1973, so it's not, I mean, it is, we recently watched Fireball 500, which feels like a completely different universe from this film, and that came out just a few years earlier, but it's kind of touching on some of those more uh, mature themes you just mentioned, like this movie is way more grounded than typical racing movies and it does touch on things like uh themes like justice you know there's a line from the data uh, when he's in jail you just referenced the scene ben um where he says uh like you know the city hall is so full of crooks and then he goes on where do you have where do you have mm-hmm. to go to find justice there's tons of family undertones the mom concerned with junior uh racing concerned for his safety um the dad later on once his son's out of the moonshine business entirely um there's a lot legacy like i I think one question i have for you ben and i know we're going to go a ton of different directions uh, in this podcast there's a lot of ground to cover here but uh especially in the first half really throughout this film I feel like Junior, uh, and the character in this movie's name is Junior Jackson, but again, it's it's based very uh, heavily on Junior Johnson. But um, he has a line where he's arguing with his brother and his mom, and he says, how many times has my name been in the newspaper? And when they kind of push back, he says, the only time a garage mechanic uh, will have his name in the newspaper is when they announce his funeral. So very much he seems focused, fixated on not just earning the money that comes with being a successful race car driver, but with the fame, with becoming a star. Later on, he tells uh, one of the first track owners or promoters, um, I forget the character's name off the top of my head, he tells them that stars, um, like, uh, uh, what, what is the line? Uh, stars cost money. He's asking for more pay. Um, so like in your experience with Junior, Ben, like how accurate is that? Does he... Um, a driver who enjoyed the limelight or is he just you know winning and earning money to 
help get his family out of the moonshine no, business. No, I, th- I think the limelight is something that he really wanted, and, and and that's a little bit different than Junior, though, because Junior, it's funny, it's great that you brought that up, because Junior honestly was looking for a way to make money more so than the fame and fortune. I don't think Junior really wanted that in real life, uh, whereas the character of Junior Jackson did want that. But the person you're talking about was which is so great about this movie is because there's so many of these people in the early 70s that went on to become great uh, actors. And the person you're talking about is Ned Beatty, who played the, the character Hackle. Yeah. And he was uh, a, a short track promoter who was on a shoestring budget, you know, tried to save every nickel he could and tried to keep every dollar he could. And there's a line in there. He says, well, you know, you were, you know, illegal and I should find you 50 bucks or 25 bucks, whatever, but because you've had such a great show, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And that was the typical short track promoter back in those days. Cause they tried to save every nickel they could. Right. But as far as, uh, uh, Jeff Bridges playing this character of junior Jackson, yeah, he wanted the stardom because if it wasn't stardom, it means he's stuck in Wilkes County, North Carolina, uh, if he's not making moonshine and he's not driving a race car, most likely he's uh, stuck in a plant somewhere uh, making hosiery or making something, uh, you know, making uh, like a cotton mill, the same thing Dale Earnhardt I swore he would never do again. And and to get out of that cotton mill, he's going to have a college education and, he didn't, and didn't have the money to do that. So it, that you're stuck. And racing was his ticket out, just like it was the same with so many people. Uh, If you could drive a race car, that was your way out of Wilkes County. Please, God, get me out of Wilkes County. And that's that was the line uh, that so many real life people wanted. But see, looking at Junior Johnson, the real Junior Johnson character, uh, he I don't think he really wanted the stardom. It just kind of came with it. That's a little bit of difference between the character and, and Junior. Yeah, you know, I came across some, after watching this, I had to know more about Junior Johnson. And I found an interview, a a quote unquote interview, um, where somebody had just came across him coming out of a Hardee's. And this is uh, Junior Johnson in his 80s. Um, so you talk about down to earth. He's eating at Hardee's. This guy got has more money for more championships in NASCAR and everything. Still eating at Hardee's. Comes out totally willing to talk to this person. Uh, hold just somebody with a, a phone camera right up to him, and there he is. He's ready to talk. And I hear you know he's willing to sit there and talk about uh, you know winning Daytona and things like that. Uh, what? How much of Jeff Bridges feels like that, uh, you know, this this is the first time we've talked about before with, you know, race car drivers are all jerks on screen. This is the first time we saw that sort of um, down to earth uh, kind of how much of Jeff Bridges performance do you think matches up to your idea of Junior Johnson? How much of that? Because uh, I think you, the, some of the things you described sound very similar to how Jeff Bridges played it and how he might have looked in in certain interviews I saw. Uh, how much of that felt real to you about the the way he talked and the way he carried himself? I think a lot of it did, uh, Josh. And and what I like the scenes that he's concerned about his parents and concerned about his mother and and those types of things very much dead on. I think, but trying to um you know make his way into the sport where i think we're also very accurate as well back in those days you had to remember you just had to sort of work your way in and and those are rough bunch of characters i remember using this line in an article once uh, many years ago and it's very true you had one group that was fighting the other group that was drunk and then you had a third group that was drunk and fighting and that was kind of the way it was in those days. It was a rough neck sort of group in the 40s and 50s. And it was kind of like, lock up your daughters. They're coming to town. One of those types of mentalities uh, when you heard of a NASCAR race coming in. And these guys were rough neck types. You know, these are all rig type guys to come into your city uh, to, you know, because think about it. They were moonshiners. They were mechanics. They were uh, hard-boiled type guys, and so when you have a Jeff Bridges in this movie, 
trying to work his way into uh, this sport. Uh, and it's more out of desperation. You know, remember he needed a thousand dollars to help get his, uh, you know, dad out of prison and pay the, the bill to the attorney and the attorney, the attorney in this thing is slightly shady too. It's like, I'll help you dad, but Hey, I'm the only guy in town and that I'm the only choice you have. And I'll take care of the bill. You got to pay the, the fine to the courthouse. That's crooked by the way. And then, oh, and the, the other comforting necessities to make sure he's okay. And he won't really tell him what those are. So he's like, okay, the, the cards are stacked against you and your dad, but this is what we require. So that was the mentality then as well. And uh, so Junior, uh, uh, Jeff Bridges has to come up with this money somehow. And again, it's either racing or it's moonshine. So. The question is, you know, how much of that was Junior? Well, I think there was a lot of that. But but in real life, Junior's uh, family, Junior, it was very well known that his family was into the moonshine business. And, you know, talking about Art Lund, who played Junior's father, that's pretty dead on, too, because uh, Junior's dad was very a very humble, down-to-earth guy, just like Junior, very quiet sort of fella. They didn't look alike very much. Junior's father had solid white hair, kind of a thin guy. Um, but he, he wasn't one of these big, bolsterous, I'm a moonshine type fellow. He was he was kind of quiet. And, and Art Lund played uh, exceptionally, uh, you know, to make sure that he played the exact role of, uh, of playing Junior's dad. And he nailed it because he was exactly the same. And he, he, he wasn't on board with uh, with his boys being involved in in moonshine but it was almost like well you know pardon me but damned if you do damned if you don't this is all we know and there was one time very quickly there was one time that they took something like i want to say sixty-five thousand gallons of moonshine out of that junior johnson home when they raided it once in the 30s and it was um you know they were they were the kingpins of new of north wilkesboro and so junior knew what his destiny was going to be the key was just don't get caught and he did get caught once and he did spend time in prison up in ohio because he did get caught he got caught up in some barbed wire had the barbed wire not been there junior would have been home free but he did spend i think a year and a half or two years uh and he was racing then by the way too and he had to stop racing for a while to go to prison but you know that was the family business and his dad didn't want him to be in it but at the same time what are they going to do with themselves so that's the way it was this well, movie we brought this up before about how to talk about that early time of nascar and how mm-hmm. you know when you look at nascar today um that that moonshine era those those rough and tumble guys they you don't really see them uh, represented that much and you mentioned it, everybody knew that that's what he was involved with and uh you, you had to stop racing and go to prison um yeah. which is its own kind of uh hardcore there what what was the case again like what was sort of the talk among fans and things like how much of that part of it when you went to see a nascar race uh you know uh, those guys came to town or whatever how much of that was part of the conversation how much did you did the average fan understand about who junior johnson was or who any of those drivers were that were involved in moonshining how much of the early story and quote-unquote brand of nascar what was that a part of oh i think it was huge because that was kind of a draw really to to see what a moonshine driver was like uh in in the uh say late 40s 1949 50 and i think it was like i'm 99 sure about this i think it was 1955 when when junior was caught on with the moonshine at the moonshine still and he did spend a year and a half in in ohio in prison but i do know this real quick and i'm sorry we're off the beaten path we'll get back to the movie but there was a driver named Roy Hall uh, from Georgia, and and he actually 
was had a great reputation for being a moonshiner. And there was a track, I don't recall the name of the track, but it was packed because people knew Roy was coming. And the announcer, this is really true, Nasser, the announcer came, came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to announce that Roy Hall will not be here tonight because he's actually in jail. And everybody goes, oh, I can't believe it. And then, but I have good news. The sheriff of the county says that he will definitely be out of jail by Friday and he'll be back to race next Saturday night. I mean, this is a true, true story. <laughs> so, so it's oh, okay. So, you know, cheer, everybody in the crowd's like, oh, okay, we'll stay and watch this race. We'll definitely be back for next week. So, you know, they, they wanted to see Moonshiners race because it was so fantastic and wanted to know what it was like. And, and see, I asked Junior this myself in an interview, and, I, and he was so forthcoming about it. He said, look, here's the thing. When, when I was driving moonshine cars, the lights are off in these roads in Wilkes County. And this is where the moonshine moniker comes from. The lights are off, the moon is shining and you, you drive with no headlights. Okay. So, you know, these back roads and there are no guardrails on these things. So you, you get sort of know where the hairpins are. You've driven them so many times and you got this revenue behind you. And here's the deal. If you get caught, then you're going to jail. I mean, that's just the way it is. So you got to be super, super good on these roads, whether it be dirt roads or whether it be asphalt. So he told me, he said, here's the deal. I said, when I would race on short tracks like Wilkesboro or Martinsville or wherever, Hillsboro, wherever the case may be, or I raced at Charlotte, Daytona, whatever, he said, that was a piece of cake because I didn't, A, I didn't have an, a moonshine uh, or a revenue behind me, and I knew I wasn't going to go to jail. It's like, and they're going to pay me money. So it's like, this is no big deal to run 200 miles an hour, 175 miles an hour. This was fun to me. There was no pressure. I didn't have a car full of moonshine shifting around on my back seat into my trunk. And there was nobody behind me with a red light or a blue light. And it was not into the world if, if I missed a hairpin turn and either went off the side of the mountain or went to prison. So it's <laughs> like, okay, huh, this is great. So so the guys that like the Curtis Turners and the Junior Johnsons and those types who did it on a daily basis, like three, five, seven days a week, when they got to a racetrack, it's like, this is no big deal. This is fun. And that's how they, you know, they enjoyed doing that. So to tie this into the movie, so you get Junior Jackson who has his Mustang uh, souped up and, and he puts the holly carb on it. And his mom says, so did you get the holly carb on there? He said, how do you know? How did you know about a holly carb? Oh, I read your magazines. You know, she was already getting in tune to what was going on the same way his mother was, you know, getting into, you know, what are you doing on the racetrack? So, yeah, it, everything was family oriented and, and if you're doing moonshine, the family knows it. If you're driving a race car, the family knows it. And mountain people love them dearly. The Wood Brothers, uh, any of these people, they're very close knit and they're very close to the vest. And they don't want to tell you things because that's the mountain life. They they want to keep all their family information and family secrets a secret. And so when you do well, they want to celebrate together. If things if they don't need to know things, they won't tell you things. And that was that was the Junior Johnson Johnson family way of doing things. That's super interesting. Yeah, obviously the Junior Johnson backstory is extremely important into to kind of understanding this whole movie. Uh, I want to transition a little bit to talking about how like the actual racing, some of the at track stuff is depicted because typically in these episodes, Ben, we start we kind of talk about the racing stuff, and then towards the end we start to talk more about you know performances and and story elements and things like that. But establishing a strong background, who Junior Johnson was, how he got how he moved from kind of the moonshine business into racing and then back and forth for many years. That's obviously a super important foundation. But I do want to talk yeah. about a couple of the key racing scenes. Early on, we see him at a demolition derby. We see him racing at a, a local dirt track. Um, but I want to skip ahead a little bit to some of the NASCAR races because the first you know big NASCAR race is at Hickory Motor Speedway. Uh, and w me and Josh have watched a lot of movies from a lot of eras. To me, this was so far the most gorgeous depiction 
of NASCAR stock cars on a short track that we've seen so far. Whether it was mm-hmm. the cinematography itself, what I, what stood out to me was the way they cut between the drivers working, the cars rocketing by, and they did a lot of shots of the fans. They especially did this at the end of the, the Martinsville race at the very end of the, the movie. But even in this Hickory scene, um, balancing those three elements, the drivers working, the cars working, and the fans getting super into it, like... I don't know. It it looked beautiful to me. What also stood out to me were some of the finer details. Uh, drivers, notably Junior Jackson in this movie, racing in a t-shirt, an open-faced helmet, and drinking a, a Coke at times in the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. Obviously, I wasn't around during these times. I know this is a long, long time ago for all of us here. But like, I know you called this the most accurate racing or NASCAR movie you've seen. How accurate were those scenes at uh, Hickory and at Martinsville? Uh, I think they were very accurate, and I and praise God that they did. They they didn't switch off to a, stro- a short track, like a front stretch at Darlington and the turns at Daytona oh, yeah. and the back stretch. At, I mean, that just that sets my <laughs> hair on fire when I see those. They actually stayed at the same racetrack when they went into a back stretch t- shot or a, a turn shot, say at Hickory. And I mean, the only thing that I saw anywhere in the whole movie that I didn't agree with was the fact that at the scenes you're talking about that, that Jeff Bridges wasn't wearing a driver's suit, uh, you know, during those shots. Now, uh, like for instance, Kyle Kingman, uh, excuse me, nope, wrong one. It was, um, can't remember the guy's name. That's not Kyle Kingman, but one of the guys, the guy that got, that got fired for wrecking the number 25 car at Hickory. Mm-hmm. He had on a driver's seat. And so that says to me, okay, at that era, they everybody should have had on driver's suits, which they did, because driver's suits came into to, uh, NASCAR in 1964 after Fireball Roberts sadly and tragically died at Charlotte. So we're, you know, we're nine years past that. And so that's the only thing in the whole movie that I thought should have been corrected. Now, on the short tracks where they we're racing on dirt and he's building his career and he's, you know, he's racing on those tracks for hackle, which again was Ned Beatty. Okay. I could see some of those guys, maybe not obviously couldn't afford a driver's seat because they were driving in t-shirts, but when they got to Hickory and the late model cars, uh, yeah, they probably should have had one. Um, so, but yeah, the track was accurate. I loved like you, I love the way that they had the fan shots there as well as and, and there's several things that i thought was act really cool to pick up on talking about the hickory motor speedway shots for instance there's a there's some shots of number 77 it's a 64 chevelle and a lot of people may not realize this but the number 77 car with yellow numbers and the orange uh, paint scheme was harry gant's car before he came to the cup series uh montclair furniture was the sponsor on that car. And of course, the double zero car was um, Sam Ard, uh, who was a champion, Bush Series champion before it became Xfinity. Sam Ard was a great driver. Uh, and that paint scheme was well known, very well known in mm-hmm. the 70s that, uh, that Jeff Bridges was driving. And I picked up on something else, not sure if you realized it, but in the booth, the announcer uh, calling that particular race was ned jarrett and mm. yeah and he was uh of course at the time he was the promoter and owner of hickory motor speedway after retiring as a two-time cup series champion he moved over to own hickory speedway and then he went into doing broadcasting with mrn and cbs sports and espn and various ones but if you go back and look at it uh, he's on there gosh probably a total of 30 seconds or 45 seconds in the booth but I thought, oh, that's cool, Ned Jarrett. He's the uh, he's the announcer. So yeah, there's a lot of things uh, that are there that are very interesting to pick out. And and another thing, very quickly, at that time, 1973 was the first year that they started using the radios from the pits to the cars. And the reason I know that is this is a really interesting story. Bobby Allison was the first to use it. And the way he used it and came up with it was the CB radio. And Mm -hmm. a buddy of his, they were trying to figure out how to do this at the racetrack. So a buddy of his simply took a CB radio and converted it to where he could, Bobby could have speakers 
in his helmet and they tried it i believe they tried it at martinsville and it was so loud they couldn't you know, the cars around him they couldn't make it work quite right so they put some padding in his helmet and kept fiddling with it and fiddling with it and finally got it to work but the original radio used was a cb radio and then they started using what was seen in the movie where these little walkie talkie type radios were were taped or whatever to the roll bar and as you saw in the movie a lot of times it was one way from the crew from the uh pit road to the driver so you saw you know jeff bridges do the thumbs up you know and so they went to that for a while and as time went on you could see how the radio communication of course went from driver uh to back to the pits and and even as far up as 1980 i remember a 79 daytona 500 when they started using video in the cars uh they had a camera inside benny parsons car and it was horrible to be honest it was just (laughs) jaggling all over the place and you couldn't see what was going on and well now you see we have incredibly good audio video but in the very beginning about the same time that this movie came out was when uh bobby and his friend uh who was an electronics uh guru were coming up with the cb radio idea so (laughs) that they sort of played with that a little bit well yeah the this this era um and junior johnson specifically is credited um with a lot of those innovations you mentioned a few years before we get fire suits we're getting radios now um there's a couple other things i've heard about junior johnson and they don't really talk about it in this movie so much but how much of this is the legend of did he really invent drafting did he really you know uh, all like how is that again in this era it's hard to understand a time how were they pack racing before and how were they racing before somebody figured out the draft like that yeah, well, it's true that Junior did come up with that, and and it happened in the 1960 Daytona 500. Uh, he was just tooling along in a car that Ray Fox was the mechanic on. John Mason was the team owner, but Ray Fox was the mechanic, and the car they took to Daytona that year was just not very good. It wasn't very, very uh, fast at all. And he's just tooling along, and I believe he got behind the car of uh, – uh, Marvin Panch and Marvin was out there like Jack the bear and he was running great. And he looked like he was going to win the race and, and kind of picked up on Marvin a little bit. And all of a sudden he took his foot off the throttle and like, what's going on. And the draft started and then he, Marvin kind of dropped down and left him out to dry a little bit and he slowed down again. And then Cotton Owens came up in his Pontiac and, you know, they got in the same line and it happened again. It kind of spooked him a little bit and it's like, what's going on. And that's how it is true that junior was the one that sort of discovered it. And then when both cotton Owens and Marvin had trouble late in the race, well, of course, junior was in position to win in this underfunded and underpowered car that he had with Ray Fox and he ends up winning the 500. So yeah, that's, that is definitely true. I don't know why others didn't sort of pick up on it that ran in packs like you talked about, but, it, but yeah. And junior was like, like I said before, kind of a closed, uh, close to the vest kind of guy. He didn't, he wouldn't tell you anything unless you ask him. And then half the time he wouldn't tell you <laughs> the answer, but because he was just a mountain man, he just don't ask me cause I'm not going to tell you the answer. And, uh, that's why he was a lot of times why he was just so successful as a driver. Well, and you mentioned a couple of the other drivers in this movie. We talked about Junior Jackson is is a a very accurate portrayal of Junior Johnson. Mm-hmm. What about the other drivers? Like the this guy Kyle Kingman, um, his name is King, uh, and he drives the forty three. And so yeah. obviously, like you want to read into it a little bit that that's Richard Petty. What about all the other characters in this movie? It, it, this is fictionalized. It's not like the last movie we watched where it was a straight up biography. These are fictional characters in this movie. But how much of those other drivers could you read into and say like, oh, is that is that was that a, a fictional representation of Kyle of Richard Petty or how much of the other guys match up? I, I thought it was interesting, Josh, that you picked up on the Kingman uh, uh last name there because i also thought that's interesting 
that the last name was Kingman and he had a mustache very much like Richard Petty had in 1973. And he drives the 43 car. And uh, the fact that uh, when they get to the cup series, uh, they go into the 12 car, of course, being a top car and the 43 car being a top car. And, uh, you know, G Elroy Jr. Jackson uh, by that time, of course, is in the cup series. And those are the two cars in 1972 that uh, were as far as the cup series go that were, they were the two top cars as far as, uh, you know, winning Bobby Allison won 10 races in 72. And I think by, I think Richard Petty won six maybe, but that was a fierce, fierce competition between, uh, those two guys for the 72 championship. And then when the movie comes out, of course, they picked those two cars to be, uh, the cars in the movie that came out in 73 filmed in 72, of course, but it came out in, I believe, in February, if I'm not mistaken, or March of 73. So, yeah, but the fact that Kyle Kingman drove the 43 car with the mustache, with the Kingman last name, yeah, I just thought that was really, really interesting uh, that they brought those two in. And, you know, a couple of things while we're talking about that particular sequence I wanted to tell you about is extremely interesting to me. You may or may, or may not have heard the story when they filmed that sequence in Martinsville, when they were trying to get the 43 and the 12 together and uh, junior Jackson wins the race and goes up to the press box, they filmed it according to Clay Campbell with Martinsville. They filmed it 13 times of him walking up those steps and he walks into the press box and the press say, Hey, whatever they say. And they have the flash bulbs and it ends right there. But he walked up 13 times to get it right. Okay, but but the backstory of this, this is this is hilarious. What happened was the, the movie set guys walked, uh, talked to the Speedway and they said, OK, what I want you to do is I, we want to set up this to where the fans have already left the racetrack and they they want to uh, leave all the trash out there on, on the, the main grandstand. OK, great. Well, they forgot to tell the real maintenance man this information. So he comes back to the to the racetrack the next day. He's like, well, holy crap, what's going on? I, we cleaned this up yesterday. So that he had all his guys clean this up again. And the movie people come later in the day and say, we just set up all this up. What happened? So they, they get all their trash out again. And they put it back out again. So they, we'll just have to film tomorrow. So they come back the next day and the trash is out. The new maintenance, the regular maintenance man comes back. So we just cleaned this up. What happened? So they cleaned it up again. <laughs> and so finally they're like, wait a minute, who keeps, who keeps putting the trash out and who keeps cleaning it up? We need it done this way. So that went on for a couple of days to finally the right people talk to the right people and realize that we need you to leave the trash out because we need it to be this way for the movie. So wow. that's, that's a true story, but uh, they finally got it right. And they left all the beer cans and the trash and the hot dog wrappers out long enough so they could film the movie. It's hilarious, but uh, it actually happened. I, I just think it's interesting. Josh and I now have watched two movies in the last couple of weeks that have um, drivers not named Richard Petty driving the obviously iconic Petty number 43. It was Dave Owens in Fireball 500. Now it's um, Kyle Kingman. But yeah, those recognizable cars, the the kind of Bobby Allison Coca-Cola colors, the Wood Brothers 21. Um, I know Josh last, a couple weeks ago, called it blasphemous to have anyone besides yes. Richard Petty in the 43. So, yeah, and you I know, know one other thing, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. One other thing I want to add real fast, I'll be quiet here. If you look back at the prayer session before the race, uh, and before they start that, you'll see, uh, if you look closely, you'll see Bobby Allison, you'll see um, Henley Gray, you'll see Glenn Wood, you'll see a bunch of people that were actually racing in that race that day. I think Dave Marcus could be spotted. Um, Elmo Langley was a the driver then. I mean, it's just fun to watch because they're all sitting there during this uh, section, the little impromptu church service. And it's just fun to watch these old drivers uh, of that era sitting there. I saw Bobby Allison there and just kind of neat to see them all Good gathered and think, oh, wow, that's cool that these these folks are sitting there for the church service. Yeah, that, that scene. And I, I want to talk about that scene in a little while because I thought that was a really just 
well shot kind of moving moment where you see Jeff Bridges kind of looking around Junior Jackson, you know, taking it all in, um, you know, because that was a huge crowd. Uh, that'd be a huge crowd for a race today, but to see that many people poured into Martinsville, like just the spectacle of that scene. I, I love the way it was shot and the way it was edited. Um, I have one more question for you, Ben, kind of regarding the racing, um, because in this movie, um, Junior Jackson, Junior Johnson is kind of depicted as uh, an aggressive driver who's unafraid of using the bumper. Like his mom has the line at one point. I don't know how, I don't know what car you didn't slam out of the way today or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and the final race, he and Kyle Kingman get together and that's how uh, um, Junior wins the race. So was that part accurate as well? Or is Junior not quite as uh, gutsy, let's say, as this movie portrays? No, I, I think it was because, you know, one of the things that, that Junior loved about Kale Yarborough as his driver from 1973 to 1980 was the fact that Kale drove very much like he did. And Kale could be smart behind the wheel, but he could be very aggressive behind the wheel as well. And that's the way Junior was. He was smart enough to realize that I can't win a race unless I'm there at the end. But if I need to lay a bumper on somebody to get there to the end, I'll do that. And he was, uh, Junior was very aggressive when he needed to be. Because he needed to be at times, I guess, uh, on the roads uh, running the moonshine. And I'm sure he laid a fender on a, a revenue or, or two uh, if he pulled in the woods and let the revenue get ahead of him and then come back behind him and spun him out, whatever. But uh, yeah, Kale was a very aggressive little driver when he needed to be. And, and that's what Junior loved about him. So yeah, Kale uh, was aggressive and Junior was aggressive as well, for sure. Yeah. Well, I think we've done a pretty good job now kind of encompassing the racing. And, and we'll still touch on finer details as we go. But this is kind of the second half of the show where we want to transition more into uh, the movie itself, the, the filmmaking itself. Because as we kind of briefly mentioned at the beginning, I feel like this was a very, uh, I don't know, you use the word grounded, I believe, Ben. I agree. This was not a cheesy racing film by any means. And Josh and I, we've watched Stroker Ace recently heavily reliant on the cheese that is queso cheddar uh, grilled cheese sandwich it's all over the place or i should have made a chicken reference i I totally blew that right there um and there's movies we haven't seen yet like days of thunder we haven't watched that movie on this show yet but as much as i love days of thunder it's cheesy as well It, it it's very uh some of it's not even racing cheese it's just 80s cheese this movie had no cheese this movie was lactose intolerant in my opinion and to me it was refreshing after some of the movies we've watched recently so I want to turn it over to you for a moment, Josh, because I know you had some notes. You called this um, maybe the most mature movie we've watched so far. Is that correct? Yes, and, and that's that's a tough. Uh, you you hit I think uh, the the best way on the no cheese because this, you know, Ben talked about the lawyer and them going to prison and negotiating through some of that stuff is I I, I don't want to overstate, but some of that is like you're watching the Wire Appalachia um, kind of thing. <laughs> Um, it is it is so um, grounded and feels very real. Uh, and there's a lot of subtlety and things and, and mature. I even mean mature in terms of um, what I would classify as as grown up co- complex emotions. Um, yeah. You know, there's an entire uh, at, at a certain point, Junior Jackson gets involved with this. A uh, woman named Marge, who's some kind of like driver groupie um, kind of thing, um, and he catches feelings for her pretty hard, and then he sort of figures out um, who she is and how she goes about these relationships with drivers, and so you watch him get humiliated um, by her, and um, there's another part where he's. Um, he's just coming to and, and starting to experience stardom uh, as a racer. And he goes to uh, a Kmart and he records his own voice or he starts to record his own voice. And he gets this kind of self-conscious um, feeling to him. All of this is uh, very well conveyed uh, on screen in a way that, as you meant, you mentioned Stroker Ace, uh every time every movie we watch makes me hate stroker ace even more but this movie is almost beat for beat the same plot almost as a stroker ace uh or or even a fireball 500 but it is 
so much more real uh, and um, just uh, feels like what, and again, this is, this is fictional. Like when we talk about Junior Johnson versus Junior Jackson, it is a fictional character and, and these other guys are, are um, not real, but it feels very real. It feels very immersive. Um, ben, what, how d- d- does this feel as a movie in terms of that cheese factor? You know, you talk about this is your favorite because it's so down to earth. Um, what, how, how do you see this, you know, as he said, against all of these other racing movies? Yeah, I, I think it's very accurate. I mean, it's, it is, it's one that is real life. Um, you know, there, there are comedies and I think Stroke Race w- was set out to be a comedy, uh, well, this is not, it's, it's a real life sort of movie. You know, one of the things about the girlfriend, Valerie Perrine. Uh, was the actress that played Marge in this one. And you're right, she she was with the driver of the week. Whoever was the most successful this week is the boyfriend of the week. And I don't think uh, Jeff Bridges or uh, Junior Jackson was used to that. I mean, he, you know, he was, again, a mountain boy, probably not exposed too much to the world at that point in his life. I don't know what age they had him at, maybe 22, 23, not sure. But and I and I'll say this too. I think the there was a bedroom scene or two, and I think that was a little bit risque for 1973. To be honest, um, didn't see a lot of that really uh, in that era. And um, so yeah, that was that was kind of out there for that time uh, as far as movies go. Um, so yeah, but she she was sort of uh, set, sort of playing the field and she was basically with every driver in the film and depended upon where they finished on the racetrack to be quite honest and I think he sort of picked up on that he fell in love with her in the beginning and then he realized that you know she was all over the map and by the time he got to the cup series he had gained an education on her and gained an education on how to drive for uh, another team owner uh, and how to make it in the sport and how to negotiate, uh, you know, how to drive for someone else other than himself because he knew he finally realized that I can't afford race cars and I will take the 70 30 cut or whatever it was he was offered and see where we go from here. But he also made the comment of, uh, you know, this trophy I just won is collateral for getting a better ride, et cetera. So I think what my point is he was growing up fast. Uh, in this movie but another thing that struck me too that I wanted to mention and I went back and watched this myself just to get a few pointers I've seen it a bazillion times but every time I see it I see something I didn't see the time before and something that really struck me as far as uh, Junior Jackson's personality there was a scene in the movie to where he he raced the night before, but he hurried to the courthouse to meet his dad before he was to be sent off to prison for a year. And there's a there, and the director left the camera on this one particular shot. It was about eight to ten seconds, and he parks in an area, and it said parking for county employees only. Well, he parked right there, <laughs> and I think I think that said to the, the viewer, and uh, that I am not following the rules, and I won't follow the rules. And this is my personality as a driver, as a moonshiner, as a person. And and that spoke volumes to me because, again, the director left it there for six or eight seconds to say this speaks volumes about his personality and who he was early in the game. And then being able to get a top ride later on, I'm going to be that way. I'm not parking uh, where I'm supposed to, I'm parking where employees park. And that means I'm going to do what I want to on the racetrack. I'm going to do what I want to in life and with my girlfriend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, if you follow my point. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he was, he was coming of age and, you know, making sure that the world knew who he was and I'm leaving Wilkes County to make my way in life. That was, that was what that, that one scene said to me. Yeah. Uh, Rule number one of filmmaking. You know, show don't tell, and I think they do a great job of. You know, some movies we've watched, they, there's not 
consistent characterization, but with Junior Jackson, this movie, he never really deviates. He has his low moments when his father gets sent off to jail for a year, when he has to go back to running moonshine to get uh, money to pay for that stock car, uh, when he gets humiliated and, and realizes what's going on with Marge. You know, he has his low moments for sure, but he's consistent. He has a goal. He's consistently stubborn. He's that rebel. Uh, and, and I appreciate that they do that. And, um, and you said right there, Ben, you think of this as kind of a coming-of-age story. And I didn't really think of that at first when I watched it. But now that you say that, it it really is. Like, what I think really impressed me about this movie is the subtlety of all the performances. There are very few people who are, like, just playing caricatures, who are just um, really over the top. And especially not Junior Jackson, played by Jeff Bridges. Yet... Those little wide-eyed moments, like I noted the Martinsville prayer scene, how he just seems to be taking it all in. You mentioned the way he goes about you know, his relationship with Marge and how he kind of learns over time what she's really about and how that's new to him. That's not something he'd ever been faced with before. Like the movie, the director, they never just slam that in front of you and, and ram it down your throat. You have to kind of be paying attention, which obviously I wasn't the first time because I didn't think of it as a coming-of-age story. But now that we kind of sit back and discuss beat by beat, everything junior goes through it's like no it really is and and i think that's you know everyone loves a good uh story like that uh and i think this one hit it pretty much perfectly in a lot of respects mm-hmm. yeah. yeah there's a lot of scenes that i i, I want to emphasize how good the movie is at conveying all of this information all these subtle emotions and uh you know there's a lot of things that you will pick up on if you're paying attention. The, there's a scene that really jumped out at me, where he's talk. Uh, Junior is talking to his dad. His dad just got locked up. They're talking about how they're going to get the money and what they need the money for, and uh, you know how the money can buy you justice and extra things. And Junior is looking out the window and he sees an auto shop and there's like a Goodyear sign and all that. And you see the the gears turning in his head. Uh, And he doesn't say anything. It is, again, shown, not told, that he is there getting this idea of racing might be my my way to get the money, to my way out of this entire mess. And this is all done with shots uh, and acting. um, And that's what this movie does a very good job of conveying all this complexity and all this subtlety uh, through the tools of filmmaking and not just a character looking dead at you and telling you what this movie's about or things that just most of these other movies, in addition to the cheese, they're very simplistic. Um, They're very uh, rote about uh, their emotions and their story beats. And this one is not. It does um, convey all of this complexity through the use of the cinematic language. Um, and here, I, I, I would put this um, to, to you guys, um, Eric and Ben, but also to the listeners. Uh, if you saw this movie, I think this movie is up there as one of those quote unquote perfect movies in that every piece of it comes together and works. The cinematography is great. The soundtrack is great. The uh, acting is great. The editing is great. The script is great. The accuracy of the subject matter, the emotions, the the rise and fall of the character, um, all of that. Does this go in that list of movies? Uh, the the examples that I be like Jaws, Silence of the Lambs, The Matrix, where every piece of the movie just clicks together. Is this one of those movies? Yeah, I'm hard pressed to find a major flaw there's no like breaking point that ruins the plot no holes but potentially i think it's it's difficult because um it is a biography and if you're familiar with junior johnson's uh story or history you kind of already know many of the beats this movie may hit you kind of know where it ends up like this movie never never touches on junior johnson the team owner which that era comes a little later in his career after he's done driving um but if you're familiar with his story or with him personally uh then you kind of know where it's going like you're never afraid for the main character's life so if you get past that kind of stuff yeah, like if you don't know anything about Junior Johnson and you're just watching this movie as a casual viewer, then I think I agree. There's nothing that takes you out of it. 
Yeah, and I agree with you too, Josh. I think the reason that it doesn't reach that plateau, I, I believe it, it should reach that plateau. I think the reason it doesn't reach that plateau is because it's a stock car racing movie. And I think people just automatically dismiss it because it's the stock car racing movie. And the fact that it came out in 1973 when all these people, you know, on the list that you graciously sent to me and uh, to Eric, I mean, they weren't big stars at the time. What the point I'm trying to say is the, the fog around the movie is so dense that you can't see how great it is. And people, for whatever reason, I cannot understand it, is that when people in Hollywood and people generally say, oh, it's a race, it's a racing movie. Well, so that's, that could be great. And they sort of dismiss it. And, and sadly, so many times when producers and directors get their hands on a great movie script about racing, they do something to it to mess it up. This is one of those that's not messed up. I can't, I'm like, Eric, I can't find anything in it that's really wrong. There's a couple of small, small, small things, but all right, not anything uh, that would mess it up. Like, you know, let me tell, let me give you a quick example, real quick. Okay. Ford versus Ferrari. There's one scene in there where they say they're going to go to Daytona and test or, or whatever they do, race, whatever. But they mess it up by by putting Daytona signs at California Speedway. Hmm. They call it Daytona. Well, anybody that is even has a pulse and has ever seen a race knows that that's California Speedway with Daytona signs around it. You follow what I'm saying? That wow. you know that I'm sorry to, to mess that up because you're going to see that movie later on. <laughs> but <laughs> the point is that this movie doesn't have that kind of one sore thumb that it that's that's gonna stick out and think okay well that just that just took the butter out of the out of the cake mix i mean that just messed it up this one doesn't have that i can't i've looked at it i've watched it i bet you i've seen this thing 50 times and i cannot find anything that's really makes it stand out and mess up so and by the way this was jeff bridge's eighth movie that he made starting back in 1951 and he was an infant and didn't get credit for the movie i don't remember the name of the movie but he was it was his eighth movie already so and this is the second movie for valerie perrine so he had already been a seasoned actor by the time he got to this point and so but he was still very very young the son of lloyd bridges and so i'm just saying he was already very good at what he was doing at this point so yes this Again, long-winded, but this should be right up there with all the greats, in my opinion. I think it's yeah, remarkable. And- Sorry, Josh, that like me and Josh were both race fans, but we're, we're also big movie fans. But um, uh, you, Ben, are a racing historian. You knew many of these players personally, and we all kind of agreed. Whether you're a hardcore racing fan or just a movie fan, like we can't find any flaws. I think that really speaks to this movie. Yeah. Like it's easy to tell a great movie, but for a race fan to be like, oh gosh, that's not accurate. Like that's kind of Days of Thunder is a good example for that. It's like yeah. good movie, but if you're a hardcore race fan, you can see the inaccuracies and they just eat at you. They bug you. They you can't get past them sometimes. So I I think that's interesting. Sorry, Josh, what was what were you going to say? I think you both hit the nail on the head there. Of this is the first movie every time we've gone to recommend this movie and i think with the exception of the john travolta one i've recommended almost everything we've watched as a race movie uh if you like nascar if you like stock car racing you will like this movie this is the first one i think where i would just recommend this is a good movie you should watch this movie if you don't know a thing about racing you don't like racing this watch this one this one's a good one this is a good movie you know uh and that i think you both hit that that this one uh it doesn't matter how big of a fan you are this is just a plain good movie Mm -hmm. totally agree I just think it's remarkable too. Uh, you know, you also you mentioned the fog, Ben, and I wonder because um, you mentioned Jaws, Josh. That came out a couple of years after this. This movie may have been just a few years ahead of its time before the big, um, you know, epic blockbuster movies really became commonplace throughout Hollywood. And this may not fit into that epic blockbuster genre because there aren't 
crazy over-the-top crashes left and right. There's not guys flipping over guardrails, drivers rolling out of their vehicles, literally on fire. But to me, that's part of its charm. I feel like this is a movie that if it was re-released today as kind of that, you know, edgy, you know, maybe festival bait, independent film... I think it would be very successful today. I was just, we've watched a lot of movies from the 80s now, the 60s, and this movie in 1973, I think, holds up better than all of them. Like, I'm very impressed. I know we've kind of jumped into our final segment, which is like our verdict segment, but uh, Ben, did you have any other thoughts on that front? Well, yeah, and I I wanted to give you a did you know, by the way, and this really floored me. And it's it's just kind of out there, but the guy who played the father, Junior Johnson, Junior Johnson's father, I guess, in the movie, Art Lund, Arthur Lund, actually was uh, a singer with band leaders Benny Goodman and Harry James. I I think that's amazing. And then after he went away from singing as a career, he got into acting, and he ended up in this in this movie. But he was actually a baritone singer with band leaders Benny Goodwin and Harry James. Now, how about that for a track fact? (laughs) We have talked about these these old-style Hollywood that that where you had to be a singer, a dancer, an actor, a comedian. You had to be able to have this enormous range that an actor today, they can basically just be good-looking and can speak English, and you Mm. can be a movie star. But back then... Even this guy who plays the dad, who is he's still he's a major part of this movie. He's yeah. not the lead, and he's just this juggernaut of talent. I think that's crazy that I mean, actors yeah. back then had that enormous range of talent. Yeah, I mean it's just one of those go figure. I didn't know that things, but you know you just run across these incredibly interesting tidbit pieces of information, and you say, "Wow, huh? I didn't know that." But that's that's pretty impressive. I have one final question for you, Ben, because Junior Johnson, any hardcore longtime NASCAR fan knows you know, his resume. He won 50 cup races as a driver, mm-hmm. mostly in the 50s and 60s. He's a Daytona 500 champion. He won, uh, it looks up, 132 races as a team owner. He won three titles each with Cale Yarbrough and Daryl Waltrip as his drivers. He's in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. He's still to this day, actually, I think Denny Hamlin's at like 48 career wins. He's still to this day the winningest driver without a title. Um, unfortunately, he passed away just a few years ago. But yeah. you know, where do you think you know, his work, you know, The Last American Hero, the movie, where do you think that ranks ranked to him maybe as like something on his resume, an accomplishment, if you will? Oh, gosh. Um, I th- I, that's a really good question. I'm sure he saw the movie. Uh, I'm, he may have even consulted with, uh, as far as the movie goes. Um, but you know, he he was such a gentleman about everything. And I, what I loved about Junior was he 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 remained the same no matter what he accomplished on the racetrack and NASCAR. Uh, you know, he's so much like a Richard Petty, a Bobby Allison, and that generation of people they have done so, so much in the sport of NASCAR, but they just, they, they remain the same. They would invite you in for a tomato sandwich and a, and a Coke or whatever. And this, I just can't tell you how down to earth these people are. And yet they are so, so successful in our sport. But I do remember one thing in closing. I remember one thing junior told me, you know, a few years before he passed away, he started his own legal moonshine company where he would sell it. And he'd say, now this stuff is, this stuff is legal. It's not illegal. I said, okay, but he said, but he said, but I have to tell you, it's not as good as the real stuff. And okay. I mean, he, you know, the real stuff is a lot stronger than this. I mean, and so I'm like, great. What, what would the real stuff be like, you know, but he was just, I don't know, just an incredible guy and, and everything he touched turned to gold. And, but I think the reason was he's just, he never let any of the success go to his head. And the reason was he never, he didn't, he didn't seek out the success. It just sort of kind of happened. And that was the only difference I think in junior Jackson and junior Johnson in the movie, he sort of wanted it to happen where in, in junior Johnson's case, it just sort of happened out of necessity. If that makes any sense to you. It, it it was it was relieving to him to say, I drive race cars because I want to, not because I have to, and I haul moonshine because I have to, not because I want to. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. 
because it was like that's the way they made their living but when we got into racing it's like hey this is a fun way to make money and i don't have to worry about going to prison in the end and that's that was the difference and so but a, a, a charming gentleman a lot of fun to talk to he would sit there in his overalls and a t-shirt and you'd eat a sausage biscuit with him at his house and just talk about life in general and you're sitting there thinking holy cow i'm sitting here with junior johnson the junior johnson and he just he treats you like royalty and that's what i loved about him awesome stuff josh uh, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up on uh, the last american hero i would just uh, give this uh, i know i i say you should watch every single one of these but this one, I doesn't matter how big or small of a NASCAR fan or a racing fan you are, this is a great movie. Yeah, I had a fantastic time watching it. Uh, thanks, as always, for being here, Josh. Ben White, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for lending your uh, uh, firsthand knowledge, experience with uh, this movie, with the characters of this movie. We really appreciate having well, you thank, on this episode. Thank you. It's been an honor to be with you guys today, and I uh, hope we can do it again sometime. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will see you all again very soon on the next episode of Zoom Lens. Like the pine trees lining the winding road, I've got a name. I've got a name. Like a singing bird in the croaking toad, I've got a name. I've got a name. And I carry it with me like my daddy did But I'm living the dream that he kept here Rolling me down the highway Rolling me down the highway